0: Many of the discussions that we've been having have been framed in light of the crisis of COVID-19 and this novel coronavirus. And yes, COVID-19 bad, but guess what might be a lot worse? Climate change. Now for those of you who may not know, here's a primer. And for those of you who do know, you know, bear with me or you might want to skip ahead a little bit. Climate change refers to the fairly drastic changes in long-term and short-term weather patterns and events, and we can see a lot of this around us in Pakistan, which is one of the most affected countries in the world. So glaciers in the northern areas are melting, and the flooding is creating entire new lakes in some instances. Sometimes villages and homes are wiped out. There are rising sea levels at our coasts down in Sindh and Balochistan because of these melting ice sheets in the north and south Poles. Other weather is messing up too. So there's heavy rains and higher temperatures that may be ruining cotton and wheat crops. That has an effect on farmers and on workers. And remember all of the flooding, like the floods of 2010. All of this also has implications for biodiversity. The kind of range of animals, insects and plants is shrinking as well, where they can actually be. So this brings greater problems to ecological systems. So the climate disaster for us is not in the future. It is now and it's only going to get worse. What causes climate change? The huge increase in greenhouse gas emissions, and most of these emissions are carbon dioxide emissions, since the middle of the 20th century, that comes mostly from carbon-based fuels or fossil fuels that we use for industry, transportation, industrial agriculture. Pretty much most of our source of energy comes from these fossil fuels. We call these kinds of gases greenhouse gases because when they go into the atmosphere, they conduct infrared energy, which means that they retain heat, they trap it. And so that warms the earth. It's like when some of our farmers grow tomatoes in northern climates, they may cover them with plastic tarps. So that lets the light in, but it doesn't let the heat out. And I guess that's good for tomatoes. So right now, the warming of the earth is at about 1.14 degrees Celsius, greater than pre-industrial levels. Now, it might be more than that, but that's the last time I checked the NASA website. And it's this warming that is leading to climate change. We need to limit that warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, according to scientists around the world, in order to not to avoid climate catastrophe, but to hope that it will be less bad than it would be if we go over 1.5 degrees Celsius. And even to achieve that limit, it's going to take a massive reduction in emissions. So way more than half of what we emit right now needs to be cut. That means carbon mitigation, that is, moving towards low carbon activities and getting more of our energy and fuel from renewable resources, stuff like wind and solar. Interestingly, up until recently, the vast majority of these emissions came from the global north, the developed countries. And it's only in recent decades that countries like China have become important emitters. They're still not emitting as much per capita, that is, per person, as global north countries. Now, global agreements have recognized this disparity. Governments say they want to do something about climate change. So they met in Kyoto in Japan in 1997 and they agreed upon the Kyoto Protocol, which committed the global north countries to greater emissions reduction than global south countries. Now, the United States and Canada haven't really followed through on this, but that's a different question. Uh, Again, these countries met in Paris, in France in 2015 to agree to limit global temperature to two degrees Celsius and hope, inshallah, that they will get towards 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, one mechanism, for example, that they came up with is carbon offsets, which we'll talk about more. Something like if in Pakistan, we decide not to cut down forests or we decide to plant new trees as we're doing, then because the forests and trees are supposedly going to sequester carbon or they're going to take carbon out of the atmosphere, that counts as a non-emission that we can sell as a credit, as a carbon credit, to offset the emissions that some factory in the global north may be making. And that's supposed to mean that there are net zero emissions, right? Because I did a negative, you did a positive, and so the net is zero. But if you think about it, emissions are still going up. It's not cutting down emissions. So is it crafty accounting that regions like the European Union and even the United States and Canada are relying on when they say that they've reduced emissions? And even if these emissions have gone down, they're nowhere near what we need in order to achieve even 2 degrees by 2030, never mind you know, 1.5 degrees. So what are the mechanisms that these governments are adopting to deal with the issue of carbon mitigation and reducing emissions? What do these mechanisms have to do with markets and trading, and will they be enough? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we discuss the interrelations of politics and economics, and also how political economy can encompass a lot more than just politics and economics. I'm your host, Noman Ali. I'm an assistant professor of political economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. So to discuss some of the issues around carbon pricing and especially carbon trading, I invited Dr. Kate Irvin. Associate Professor in the International Development Studies program at St. Mary's University in Canada. She's also cross-appointed to political science and to the School of Environment. She's also literally written the book on carbon, and I mean that's the title of the book, Carbon.
1: For the last over 10 years now, I've been doing research on climate change uh, mitigation uh, globally um, and really much of that focus has been on the political economy of climate change mitigation. So really looking at what countries are doing or what they're not doing and why the kinds of policies that are being developed um, to deal with climate cri- uh, the climate crisis, climate breakdown, uh, and why. And so that has necessarily entailed you know, thinking critically about the nature of the economic system that we've got globally and the imperatives that underpin that system. So um, the need for continual growth as a measure of uh, development and progress and prosperity, all of these different things that growth is a stand-in for in terms of measuring. Um, But growth in terms of, you know, fueling the capitalist economic system and the need for profitability And the fact that all of those imperatives are, you know, really on a fundamental level at odds um, with, you know, planetary sustainability. And so, you know, as I've said over and over and over again, you know, we, we need limitless growth in this particular economic system on a limited planet. And so my research has really looked at what it means when that economic system confronts the need to address climate breakdown, which is where we're at. And it's getting worse uh, year on year. We see it all around us and wildfires uh, raging in different parts of the world in increasingly intense storms, in droughts, in, you know, flooding, sea level rise, you know, it's all around us. And so... The question is, how do we deal with that and how do we deal with it effectively? And unfortunately, you know, all of the data and research shows that we're not dealing effectively with it. And so one of the areas that I've been focused on is looking at the emergence of carbon trading um, and carbon markets as a mitigation tool. So governments around the world and at the international level, um, basically developing these markets for carbon as a way to deal with climate breakdown and my research you know there's two parts of that I guess one is looking at the development of emissions trading schemes within uh, countries Uh, so at the national level or say the EU level Um, but then also carbon offsetting which is another part of a carbon market um, where offset credits are sold into cap and trade schemes and so there's all this different terminology cap and trade is you know another way to say an emissions trading scheme or carbon trading. I think my overarching takeaway is that, you know, carbon markets and carbon trading uh, is, you know, the least disruptive to business as usual within the capitalist economic system and the need for growth um, and profitability and so this is why you know our political leaders uh you know powerful actors in finance and economics and the business community why they like it because it's not very disruptive to uh their business models and so yeah so there's different aspects to that research that i've been pursuing over the years that comparative work um and then you know at this point in time I'm especially interested as well at looking at how Article 6 of the Paris Climate Agreement um, is being negotiated for a global carbon market and for um, the continuation of carbon offsetting. So this is um, a successor to the Kyoto Protocol and what happened under the Kyoto Protocol. Um, And so looking at how that's evolving, because there, um, there are many interested states and actors who would like to see carbon trading is a central platform within the Paris Agreement in terms of meeting um, government mitigation targets. Uh, and then also looking at things, you know, the airline industry, for example, which obviously is in the throes of a crisis. Um, nevertheless, they, you know, have they their emissions prior to the pandemic um, were rapidly rising, and they haven't yet been dealing effectively with their emissions, and so they've opted for carbon offsetting as the dominant way to address aviation emissions globally. So I've been looking at that, and I'm, I'm really interested these days as well at looking at you know, this discourse that's emerging around carbon neutrality um, and net zero targets that states are setting around the world. Um, Because implicit within that language is the use of things like carbon offsetting to meet emission reduction targets, um, rather than lowering emissions at the source. And so those keywords like net zero, instead of just saying zero, um, gives us a hint in terms of what governments are planning. So I'm really interested around that as well.
0: I think you've given us a really good kind of resume or abstract of all, all of this stuff. Uh, and I hope uh, we, we dig into that a little bit, or substantially actually, in the course of, of our discussion. You've written the book on carbon. Yes. It's, it's literally called carbon. And in terms of how you describe your research, it's clear that you're very passionate about it. So I'm wondering how you got into this, what got you into this particular line of research?
1: So going back to my PhD research uh, which I did in political science at York University in Toronto, um, that research I was still in the environmental field but I wasn't looking at climate change mitigation in particular and instead I was looking at global biodiversity conservation. So still global governance um, around a major environmental problem um, but I was looking at biodiversity conservation and how Policy was being developed um, at the international level and within global institutions, uh, like the Global Environment Facility, which is housed out of the World Bank. Um, It's a separate institution, but basically very closely aligned with with the World Bank and the work of that institution. Um, And so I wanted to look at how biodiversity conservation was being approached at the international level um, and then do a global to local local to global kind of analysis that said, what does it mean when the policy, which really, when I was looking at it, was, you know, being framed as market, you know, the solution was framed as if we can develop markets in biodiversity, so it was a very neoliberal approach, um, then we can save it, we just need to create markets for biodiversity. And so I was especially interested in saying, well, what does it mean when you have this global Kind of discourse around what the problem is, you just need a market, when it actually hits the local level and, and the context on the ground, um, and, and what does that actually mean? And so I carried out um, field work in Chiapas, Mexico, looking at the implementation of a large-scale biodiversity conservation project called the Mesoamerican Biological Corridor, um, which spanned Mexico all the way down to Panama, but really looking at it in Chiapas, which is you know one of Mexico's poorest states, um, a very large indigenous population, significant conflict around land. Uh, the Zapatista uprising happened there in 1994. And so I was interested in, in looking at, well, what happens when this global policy that's framed in a very particular kind of way um, actually confronts local level realities and, and and then stepping back and saying, well, what's actually driving biodiversity loss in Chiapas um, that doesn't necessarily fit with what we're hearing at the international level? So the World Bank was the implementing agency in Mexico. Um, and, I, you know, I won't get into all of that. The long and the short of it was that the, the project when I went and did my field research it wasn't actually advancing uh, in the way that it was supposed to for a whole host of reasons, um, including the fact that project developers didn't want to come to terms with the fact that there was significant conflict over land um, in Chiapas with the best land owned by a small political economic elite. Um, and you know that was not on the table for negotiation in terms of land redistribution and what that might mean. Um, for questions of biodiversity. But uh, you know, around political economy questions, it was also really interesting to look at the implementation of the North American Free Trade Agreement and how because Mex- poor, you know, poor small-scale Mexican farmers were unable to compete with American farmers who were heavily subsidized and the importation of, of agricultural crops, including corn from the US, increasingly they were moving into biodiverse regions and clearing land um, to try to compete uh, in circumstances where it was pretty much impossible to compete. And so things like free trade weren't on the table, resource extraction, oil extraction, you know, all of those things weren't on the table, and instead it targeted poor, you know, communities and said, this is who we're going to focus on, and let's create markets for your biodiversity. So the conflict around land got in the way, things weren't progressing as they were supposed to. But while I was there doing my research, I saw that there was also um, these carbon forestry projects that were just beginning and communities were, you know, basically participating in these projects and told that, you know, look, if you plant trees that sequester carbon, you can earn carbon credits or carbon offsets that you can sell to polluters, to heavy emitters in the global north. Um, And this is going to be a a development solution because they're going to pay you for your trees. um, And then that money can be used for healthcare and education and all of these other things, which is interesting, too, because, you know, expecting communities to foot the bill for these kinds of things that, you know, many would expect the state to, to be involved in or be much more responsible for. Um, But so, you know, these communities were getting involved in these projects and I was really interested around, and this was connected to my work on biodiversity, what did it mean at the local level when um, resources like trees and, and goods within forests that were relied upon by local resource users to meet livelihood needs, what happened when the rights to those trees were transferred or enclosed and privatized um, to, to polluters in the global north, for example, meaning that they couldn't be used in the same way by local resource users, and so there's significant concerns around, um, you know, the equity implications and the livelihood implications of this. But then I also saw that the price of carbon was starting to crash on international markets, and I became very curious in terms of what was going on because of local communities. We're being promised, you know, here's your development solution. We've got your, you know, your option here now for bringing about development. Well, what does it mean when the price of carbon crashes on the international market? So this led me to, you know, start to say, well, what's actually, good? what is this international carbon market and what's happening and why is the price crashing? Um, and so this is how I, I started to, once I, you know, was wrapping up my PhD research um, I began to look at you know this question of carbon markets and discovered you know these markets were emerging the, the European Union had um, the largest cap and trade scheme globally um, you know with all of these countries having a cap and trade scheme uh, to help them meet their uh, emission reduction targets under the Kyoto Protocol um, and other jurisdictions were introducing them as well um, and then you had, Under the Kyoto Protocol, the Clean Development Mechanism, which was a large scale carbon offsetting scheme that basically said, okay, countries in the global south don't have emission reduction commitments under the Kyoto Protocol in line with the fact that, you know, they aren't historically uh, responsible in any significant way for climate breakdown. It's countries in the global north that are. So they were taking on the initial emission reduction uh, commitments under the Kyoto Protocol for an initial four years, 2008 to 2012. Um, And so one of the ways for countries in the global south to participate in the Kyoto Protocol was to say, well, you can generate carbon offsets under the clean development mechanism. So it's a UN mechanism that allows for these projects. So the forestry, you know, although the EU, I should note, doesn't accept forestry based offsets within its cap and trade scheme, other jurisdictions, uh, you know, do. Um, But basically, other kinds of projects that basically said, look, if you engage in a project that avoids future emissions, you can produce carbon credits and sell them to countries in the global north. So I started looking at the development of these cap and trade schemes and the role of carbon offsetting in these schemes um, to question why the price was crashing, which essentially then has led me on this journey of really coming to intimately understand um, the nature of carbon trading and carbon markets globally um, to develop a, a critique of these markets, um, but then obviously, you know, in referencing the, you know the book that I wrote, carbon, it's a lot. It's about a lot more than carbon trading. So I've also branched out into thinking about carbon, you know, much more holistically as well.
0: That's super interesting because a lot of the things you are saying about southern Mexico about Chiapas can apply to a lot of what is going on in Pakistan as well. And mm-hmm. uh, I hope we can get into that in a bit. But maybe let's let's backtrack a bit uh, and let's cover some basic definitions. One thing that you've mentioned is that carbon trading is about creating new markets. Or even even what you said about markets and biodiversity just struck me as kind of just weird like how does that even work but let's stick to carbon maybe and you can explain to us what is carbon trading what does it mean to give a price to carbon what does it mean that the price of carbon goes up or down what is a carbon market
1: yeah so and i mean and, and these are such important kinds of questions because i find that increasingly the policy world is talking so much about it but it's something that you know for obvious reasons many people don't know much about it. And if we're going to have you know, democratic dialogue on whether this is an effective approach to dealing with climate change, then we need to understand what's going on. So, I mean, carbon trading, you know, kind of in a nutshell, basically, it starts from this idea that climate change or climate breakdown is a market failure. And so we're getting this from neoclassical economics. And basically, what the argument is, is that because there's no price on carbon, so it's, it's basically any emitter, so you, know, you have a coal-fired power plant or you have a factory, whatever it might be, anyone who emits carbon into the atmosphere, it's free to do so. And so, but it's got all of these problems um, that come with it that then others have to pay for in terms of climate breakdown uh, and, you know, some of those things I mentioned at the beginning of our talk. And so this is basically theorized as a negative externality in that, you know, um, emitters, they don't have to pay for it. It's not part of their, you know, accounting. Uh, And so they get to do it for free. And so the logic is, well, what you need to do is make it internal and so that emitters and you know those who produce uh, carbon dioxide, that they actually see the price, they see the cost, they account for it, um, and if it's expensive, the idea is that they're actually going to change their behaviors. They're going to actually look for other options because it's cutting into their profitability. It's cutting into the cost of doing business. So, I mean, carbon markets are basically... One example of putting a price on carbon, which is something we talk a lot about these days, whether it's carbon taxes or carbon markets, so which is cap and trade. And so the idea is that, you know, if you, if you have that price and it's visible, then emitters are going to change their behavior or consumers, for example, people who, you know, if the price of gas is going up, the idea is that, they're, you know, you'll drive less or you'll look for other alternatives. So from that... The idea is okay, well, let's create a market then where that price becomes visible. So you know let's say theoretically that you know the government of Pakistan says, okay, we're going to create a carbon market. And I you know before we had our, you know uh, met up today to chat about this, um, I had a look um, at historical emissions in uh, Pakistan. And so in 2016, Um, emissions in uh, Pakistan were 178 million tons of fossil-based carbon dioxide. So let's do a hypothetical here. Basically, if a government's going to set up a carbon market, and let's say it's the government of Pakistan, and they say, okay, so in 2016, we had emissions of 178 million tons of fossil-based CO2, and we're going to tackle that. So what the government would do is say, okay, we need to now set a cap so a cap is basically the limit on how much you're allowed to emit in a particular year, for example. And so they say, all right, if, if your carbon market is going to be effective, you're, you're basically going to say if it's 178 million tons of CO2 um, in a year, and the goal is to put a price on carbon and lower emissions, then you're going to set a cap that is lower than your you know, baseline of 178 million. You'll say, okay, let's say for year one, um, we're going to have 170 million uh, 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 tons of CO2 emissions, which are allowed. So what the government does is it sets that cap. It's supposed to decline over time. And then it basically creates corresponding allowances, so carbon allowances. So if the cap is 170 million, they're going to create 170 million carbon allowances worth one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent each. Because, you know, and this is more complicated, but carbon dioxide is typically not the only greenhouse gas that's included in a carbon market. And so you have to then uh, calculate the equivalency of other gases to carbon. But so basically, you get 170 million um, allowances that are created. And in theory, what the government should then be doing is saying, okay, now we're going to auction these allowances off. And so the idea, going back to you know, proponents of carbon trading, they would say that there's going to be some firms and companies who they can lower their emissions, but they didn't because there was no price on carbon. Now that there is, they have an incentive to lower their emissions, and it's fairly easy for them to find ways to do that. So they're not going to emit... Um, you know, as much as they would otherwise, they're not going to reach their limit. On the other hand, there's an argument that there will be other industries, like steel, uh, cement, you know, that will find it harder to lower their emissions. And in fact, they may go beyond their allowable emissions. Um, And so the argument is that it all balances out because if you have 170 million um, allowances, then what you're going to have are those who have lowered their emissions so they don't use up all of the allowances that they would have been needed to use and others who will go above but there's excess emissions allowances for them to buy so the idea is that you buy and sell within that overall cap and that's where the price uh, is determined through the interplay of supply and demand in that market So, If there's a high demand and low supply, the idea is that you're going to get a higher price. If there's too much supply, then the price is going to be lower, which is what has in fact happened with carbon markets all around the world when they've been introduced. Um, But that's basically the theory of how cap and trade is supposed to work. You set the cap, you create emission allowances, and then you let those that are covered by the cap and have to participate to buy and sell emission allowances, and each year, then they have to surrender um, allowances equivalent to what they emitted that year to the government, and so that's why they have to buy and sell. So that's how it works in theory. And then there's the in practice, which doesn't align to what we're told. You know, should happen.
0: The theory sounds really nice. Like I, I like it. It's it's a great theory. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I'll be honest, I was reading your chapter. It's the one that I signed to my students. And it was, as you warn in the chapter, you're like, hang on, this stuff is complex and it's opaque. The way yeah. that it actually works is not as nice as it sounds in theory, which might be a problem with a lot of things that are good in theory, but not in practice. And, and one term that you use is there's this assumption of unproblematic commensurability, I'm hoping that that you can tell us then what is the actual practice of this both on local scales and global scales and how does this concept of unproblematic commensurability play into that
1: the unproblematic commensurability you know really comes back to you know within a carbon market and any kind of carbon trading scheme um, or for producing carbon offsets you have this a situation in which you know you have to create a tradable commodity and it has to be fungible so it has to be you know uh, and i in the chapter i i say you know a, a ton is a ton is a ton so within the market anyways we have to accept that one ton of carbon dioxide or another gas that's allowed but you know which is calculated in carbon so one ton of carbon dioxide that say emitted and I'll use my home province here in Canada, Nova Scotia, um, you know, and we're still heavily reliant on coal um, electricity generation here in Nova Scotia. So it's the idea that you know, one ton of carbon dioxide emitted from coal-fired electricity here in Nova Scotia is equivalent to a ton of avoided, um, and this is, I'm talking about offset markets, for example, but avoided carbon Um, in Pakistan, for example, um, under a renewable energy project or an industrial gas project, um, which is then equivalent to an avoided ton of carbon dioxide in Indonesia. So anywhere around the world, any kind of project, no matter the context, the idea is that all of the carbon has to be exactly the same, that we're able to account for it um, so that it is fully equivalent. And, you know, we can break that down on so many different levels in terms of talking about why that is a really problematic uh, assumption um, to assume that everything is is simply equivalent and therefore we don't have to ask any further questions. And so, you know, I love the idea of thinking about the backstory. You know, we've all got a backstory, there's a backstory to every project, there's a backstory to every ton of carbon dioxide emitted. Um, And when we assume equivalence and that everything's just commensurate, then we assume we don't have to ask any questions around the backstory, the conditions under which that carbon was produced or avoided, um, the social relations, the power relations, whatever it might be that went into those projects. It doesn't matter because we're assuming equivalence at the level of the market. And so, you know, in some ways, this is similar to, you know, if we think about the notion of commodity fetishism and how with commodities, you know, we really don't have to, you know, ask what the backstory is because we assume the commodity is the end or or is the the beginning rather than the end of a process. And so we start with the commodity. So I would say with carbon, this is what we do. We start with the carbon commodity rather than saying, well, what went into producing it? And so whether it's a question of the different kinds of project types that we're thinking about. So, you know, we, here we are emitting um, CO2 from coal fired uh, power plants in Nova Scotia. And then you've got projects, whether it might be a wind project or a solar project or a biogas project or a tree planting project or avoided deforestation or methane capture or industrial gases or clean cook stoves or water filtration. There's so many different kinds of projects that can produce, say, carbon offsets that that can be sold to emitters um, in the global north, for example. And so one of the questions is, well, you know, we have to then engage in a process of measuring and accounting and verifying that one ton is equivalent to one ton. And so in the chapter, um, I certainly talk about the fact that, you know, well, depending on what kind of project we're looking at, it might be easy to measure a ton of, uh, you know, carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, or it might be exceptionally complicated. And the level of uncertainty around uh, measuring uh, whether you've actually avoided a ton of carbon dioxide emitted into the atmosphere in the future, so there's a whole bunch of future estimates that have to go on, crystal balls as well, Um, that becomes really complicated. Um, And as many observers would say, it's pretty much impossible to guarantee that you're getting equivalency. And what's really important though is that within compliance carbon markets, the assumption is that they are equivalent and that that the the entity buying say a carbon offset has actually lowered their emissions by said amount. When that in fact is not necessarily happening because the uncertainty is far too high. And so there's that problem with it around the environmental integrity and an interesting, you know, report that I cite in the book um, that was commissioned by the EU in 2016 found that 85% of carbon offsets that were produced under the clean development mechanism, um, you know, basically did not have the emission reduction um, deliveries that they claimed. And so this is interesting because you know these offsets are being sold into legally binding compliance markets so that, you know, in the EU they could say, look, this is how much we lowered our emissions. Well, they didn't because they were buying offsets. And then we find out they're from projects that not only is that uncertainty very high, but in fact, they weren't even doing what they claimed to be doing. And so there's all these other problems around, you know, there's an incentive for project developer. Developers to overinflate what you know their estimates of what the project will do, so they can mer- earn more offsets. Um, you know, and so there's a lot there. But I would also say one of the other big issues that's really worth flagging is you know it has to do with this question of historical responsibility for climate breakdown and the fact that you know countries in the global north largely are responsible for. Um, historical emissions you know they they've been um, at carbon intensive fossil fuel intensive level uh, development and now advanced developed countries they've been at this game for uh, you know 200 years you know some more some less but so they're responsible for the lion's share of emissions that went into the atmosphere and it's only very recently that some countries uh, in the global south emerging economies have seen their levels of emissions going up fairly dramatically. On a per capita basis, they're still much, much lower than countries in the global north. And so this question of historical responsibility suggests that if there's limited carbon space remaining in our atmosphere, meaning that in line with the science of climate change, we know that there's only very little space left um, for carbon emissions if we're to avoid the very worst of of catastrophic climate change. And we're already seeing that these catastrophes are hitting in places already at 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming. So if we're actually going to address this in a meaningful way, those who are historically responsible have to begin aggressively lowering their emissions at the source. And leaving that remaining carbon space for those who have yet to benefit from this particular um, model of development. And so, I mean, the reality is, we're not shifting off of fossil fuel uh, intensive, uh, carbon intensive models of development tomorrow. And it's not going to be possible for that to happen with the snap of a finger. But certainly countries in the global north have levels of, of wealth uh, and development and capacity to engage much more aggressively in a project of decarbonization when you say no no instead we're going to develop you know trading schemes and offsetting you're basically saying we're not going to take our historical responsibility for you know contributing to climate breakdown and we're going to outsource that responsibility to others Um, And so, you know, many talk about carbon colonialism and this expectation that the burden will fall on those, you know, who are least responsible to not only bear the brunt of climate change, but also to, you know, undertake the kinds of projects um, that will allow those in the global north to benefit and to continue with business as usual. So that's really important for me in terms of thinking about the notion of unproblematic commensurability because if we assume it's all the same, we don't actually problematize these structures that are in place that allow some to benefit to a much greater extent than others. And I think what we really need to be doing these days is shining a very bright light on the historical responsibility on who has the the financial wealth and the capacity to actually undertake these large-scale transitions uh, and who needs to be doing it. Now, I know there's a politics behind all of that, so it's incredibly difficult. But my concern with things like carbon trading and carbon offsetting is that all of that gets mystified in the process so that we assume it's all good um, and we don't need to ask those really important questions.
0: I want to maybe dip into... Pakistan as a way of exploring this question that you talked about, about offsets and how they're not necessarily equal, that you can't even figure out whether or not something is equal. It's, sure. it's always struck me as really weird that if the point is to lower emissions, that's not really being accomplished when you purchase uh, what you call an offset from, say, a developing country and just use that to increase your emissions. That's not lowering anything. That's just, uh, as you said, there is some space available, and it's moving in on somebody else's space. So in Pakistan, we, we've had this project going on for quite a while. It's called the One Billion Tree Tsunami. And uh, all, a lot of the things that you mentioned about Chiapas are wrapped up in this. It's It's partly about ownership of land, who owns these kinds of forests, who gets to decide what grows there, what does not grow there, what is done with the timber, if it will get chopped down or if it will not get chopped down, and what what are some of the kinds of people's uses of those forests, and what are they now being shut out of? All of these questions are wrapped into this thing. But the logic with this is, let us grow these trees. We know that these trees suck in carbon, they hold on to it, uh, sequester it, as you said, and now, that is going to give us these offsets, which we can then sell to countries in the first world who are who need to, you know, spew carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, and that way we make money and that money we can then use for, say, let's, uh, you know, maybe clean technologies. But it doesn't have to be that whatever we, we deem to be fit. Why would you know, growing these trees not be the equivalent of emissions that are coming out of some factory in, in the first world? And and is that even the most important question to be asking here about, about this kind of offsetting project?
1: Yeah, I mean, when it comes to carbon forestry and the idea of planting trees or avoiding deforestation, there's, you know, there's so much we could talk about. And there's so much we need to talk about. Um, I would say that you know, there's a number of really important points that have to be addressed. Um, You know, much of this discussion began a while back, you know, at the international level when, you know, and and perhaps we want to question why, you know, the the Trump administration who has been opposed to climate action can get on board with tree planting um, without actually doing anything meaningful, um, within, the, within the U.S. under his administration. But tree planting is this wonderful solution. Um, now, what I would say is that, you know, absolutely, we need to be um, preserving our forests. We need to be supporting, um, you know, tree planting where feasible and within the appropriate context um, and democratic, you know, kind of governance. Um, and we need to, you know, and for so many reasons too, because trees and forests aren't just about climate change, but they are about biodiversity. They're about community livelihoods. They're about culture. They're, you know, they're about so much. So, you know, we need to to preserve our forests. We need forests. Um, but offsetting is super problematic. Um, because, you know, you basically, you know, as you noted, and, and I've, I've, you know, talked about, We have a situation whereby, you know, doing something really good, preserving forests, then turns into to allow somebody else to do something that has to stop. And so offsetting, and, you know, as you pointed out, offsetting is not about lowering emissions. This is another misconception about offsetting. Offsetting doesn't lower emissions. It's simply about, you know, if, if, Somebody says I'm going to do something bad then you say I'll do something good so we get back to the same level that we were at. It's not about an aggressive strategy for lowering emissions which is what we need. When it comes to forests there's all of these other problems wrapped up in it. So, you know, one is this question of permanence. So, how long are forests around for? um and i think you know and there's people writing really interesting stuff right now saying well if we look at the wildfires around the world whether in california or in the amazon or in australia or other places um we actually see a situation and in california and the amazon we've actually seen forests ravaging areas that have carbon offset projects underway so those forests are being destroyed so you know there's an interesting piece that was written um, you know, and by Lisa Stong, uh, I can't remember the specific name. She's a reporter. Um, you know, but basically she said, you know, what happens when the forests burn? <laughs> you know, if, if we're doing carbon offsetting, what happens when the forests burn? And so, you know, many say, well, look, we create these buffers of trees that don't get included so that you can then draw offsets from that. Um, You know, but a lot of the science says well no you know the buffers that are set aside are completely insufficient and also interesting research out of the amazon a number of years ago showing that um, because of drought rather than being a net store of carbon the amazon was actually releasing uh carbon which is not what we think you know it is what happens with something like the amazon rainforest And so, you know, you've got drought, you've got disease, you've got fires, all of these things that mean our forests aren't permanent. You have carbon leakage. So this idea that, you know, we're not addressing the root causes of deforestation at all. We're basically just saying, let's set up a project to preserve the forest, but not talk about why forests are being cut down in the first place. And so what happens is that you just get deforestation displaced to somewhere where a project isn't happening. So that's not doing anything with emissions, but we're tricking ourselves into thinking that we are doing uh, our part. There's this other really important issue um, that I think is critical for thinking about when we talk about carbon forestry, and that has to do with the difference between terrestrial versus fossil carbon. And so, you know, if we think of, you know, the, the, the atmosphere we've got right now and the carbon that is in the atmosphere right now and how that gets cycled through trees and the ecosystems and it gets released and with the seasons change and, you know, what we know today is that we already have too much carbon in the atmosphere. I think we're, I don't know, 412 parts per million. It might be a bit higher and it's too much. We've got 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming, and we're seeing, you know, climate disasters happening all around the world, um, you know, very significant and intense ones, and then this slow-moving kinds of crises like sea level rise and, and collapsing agricultural systems. And that's at 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming. So we already have too much carbon in the atmosphere, and the way that carbon works in the atmosphere is that it's... It's cumulative. So once emitted, it can stay in the atmosphere for a hundred to thousands of years. So it's not like, you know, I think I refer to it in my book as the, um, the, the unwanted house guest who had no intention of ever leaving. You know, you emit it and then it's there. We can't get rid of it. And so if we already have too much, then there's this false equivalency between fossil-based carbon and terrestrial you know uh, ecosystem carbon like that's basically in trees and land and all of these things in the sense that the trees that we've got or trees that we might plant yes can sequester carbon and maybe they can take some of that carbon that's already in the atmosphere out which would be really important although there's lots of uncertainties but what tree planting is doing is it's justifying for fossil fuel companies and for those that are burning fossil, uh, fossil carbon, it's justifying continued exploration and extraction of carbon that has not yet been burned. It's not yet in our active carbon cycle. It's not there. And so already we are confronted with climate breakdown with the carbon that's here. So how on earth are we now developing schemes that justify, hey, I'll plant some trees so that you can actually dig up Carbon that's not even yet in the carbon cycle, you can burn it and add to the stocks. So that's a real problem because we assume that they're equivalent when they're actually not. And so we need to be super careful about that. There's also lots of research to show that the world, the planet, does not have enough available land for the number of trees that would be required to actually effectively deal with you know, carbon in the atmosphere at current levels. And so we often hear people talking about, well, we'll do, you know, we'll plant trees on marginalized land. Um, But what we find is that marginalized land, well, actually it often tends to be land that's used by, you know, local communities or people who don't have formal tenure over their land. It's critical to livelihoods. And we assume that because it's marginal, so it's not top top agricultural land, well, then, you know, um, then it's open, and it's unused. And it's, you know, this blank slate upon which we can plant the trees. Or in cases where trees are already existing, well, we have seen this process in various places around the world uh, of what scholars have uh, called green grabbing, you know, building off land grabbing as, uh, you know, a concept to, to to basically show how companies, project developers or governments might say, look, here's an opportunity to make money off the trees. So we're gonna go in and create this project which essentially privatizes and encloses those trees. So that the the communities that depend upon them, the resource users that depend upon them, suddenly find that their um, use rights and their access rights are changed dramatically. They may entirely lose their rights to those lands. Um, or in cases, and this is one of the things I often think it's really important to flag, some communities very willingly say, hey, we want this project, we want to earn money, but you know, we also need to appreciate the fact that communities are cut through themselves with, you know, unequal relations of power. And this is what, you know, I um witnessed in Chiapas is that at the community level, you had some groups who, um, you know, had access to to capital, they were landowners, Um, they, you know, they earned more income, they were by no means wealthy. But comparatively speaking, they were much more well off, and they had much greater political power at the local level, to say, we want these projects. Um, whereas others didn't own land, you know, and in this case, in order to vote in a communal assembly, you had to be a landowner and only men could own land. So, you know, very quickly, you start to see how the local level itself is super complicated and and power is a huge issue. So there's all of these questions around what happens when you privatize the trees so that somebody else can continue with business as usual, they can continue with the lifestyles that they're living, or you know the the production processes that they're engaged in, um, and assume it, basically they get to claim they've done something they've not. And I think this hinges on the other really important issue, which is greenwashing, um, whereby companies get to say you know and so. This isn't necessarily, you know, for a legally binding compliance carbon market, but there's a very large global voluntary carbon market, um, and trees play a huge role in that. And so um, you've got these tree planting projects or these, um, you know, avoided deforestation projects around the world, throughout the global south, where they're producing offsets to sell to companies, especially in the global north. And those companies then have really flashy, glossy websites that say, you know, look what we're doing. And so last week here in Canada, for example, Shell Canada, so Shell, the oil company, announced that customers buying gas at Shell gas stations could get the, the app to basically um, two cents of every liter of gasoline would go to um carbon offsetting projects for forestry here in Canada and internationally. And so Shell, you know, with much fanfare announced that, you know, look at us. We're, you know, we're a great climate citizen. We're doing our part and consumers can now offset um, and support forests. And so, you know, this is, and I, I talked to, um, CBC Radio. I, I was on CBC Radio that evening, talking to them about this process, and they were, you know, asking me, "Well, isn't it better than nothing that Shell is allowing for this and or, and doing this?" And I, I, I would say, no, it's not, because a giant fossil fuel company, um, Oil Change International, which is an NGO that released a, port, a report recently, that basically scored the major oil companies around the world in terms of their climate pledges. Shell failed dramatically in terms of its pledges to deal with climate breakdown. It doesn't have plans to phase out fossil fuel exploration and extraction. It doesn't have targets in line with the science. It plans to continue with business as usual. And so one of the one of the really big problems is that, you know, and going back to this difference between fossil and land based offsetting or terrestrial uh, offsets, is that, or carbon, is that Shell, a fossil fuel company, is using offsets to justify digging up and burning more uh, fossil fuels, more oil, uh, natural gas, when this is exactly what needs to stop. And on top of it, they get, they get this green glow around them as though they're a good climate citizen. And I would say this is very dangerous because it makes us think something meaningful is happening and that, oh great, I did my part. Um, you know I donated two cents of every liter or Shell seems really active. When in fact, it's also well documented that they, they still lobby against effective climate policy at the international level, but they love carbon trading. So I, I've covered a lot there, but I, I would say that we want to be really careful around this question of carbon forestry and think about who's supporting it and why and how it doesn't actually address the crisis that we're confronted with.
0: I mean, I'm glad that my mic was on mute because the thing about two cents going to uh, to forests that just made me laugh uncontrollably. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of ludicrous but i think that you know what you finished off on is kind of the politics of the question the politics that you referred to earlier as well and that comes up in your book and that comes up everywhere really is if you want that theory of carbon trading to work then the price of carbon needs to be a lot higher than it is right now whether that's in terms of taxes uh, so that people don't want to actually use carbon, or even on those carb- carbon markets, as you said, the the price of carbon crashed back when you were doing your field work. So the question there is why is it? Uh, and and you've you've answered this, but maybe you can expand on this. Why is it that if we know carbon pricing, carbon taxing, carbon trading is not bringing emissions down? It is not doing anything to actually address the problem. Why is this still the most popular thing in mainstream discourse, in government discourse, in policy circles? It's all, it's still all about the market. It's still all about carbon pricing. And uh, you know, somebody just got the Nobel uh, prize for that a few years back, yeah. uh, Nordhaus, Nordhaus. Yeah. yeah. You know, And, and not in, in a theoretical way, but really in, in a political way, what is the politics of that being the way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say the politics of it, it goes back again to, you know, needing to put on our political economy hats and say, you know, what is the nature of our economic system and what's at stake here? And recognizing that carbon trading and carbon markets, you know, they, they come with little pain, you know, because... When we actually talk about dealing with catastrophic climate change and climate breakdown, we're talking about deep, deep structural transformation. And it's not just those who are, you know, really critical scholars who are saying that. We've got the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their special 1.5 report where they looked at, you know, um, what it would mean to keep temperature increases to 1.5 degrees celsius below pre-industrial levels versus two degrees celsius which is you know the language in the paris agreement and you know they very clearly said what we need is deep structural transformation and so you know everyone is recognizing that we need deep structural transformation which is going to be extremely costly And it threatens existing relations of power and those who profit heavily from the system as it currently exists. Um, And so I would say that one of the reasons then that carbon trading remains so popular is because it doesn't threaten that particular model. It tells us that, look, you can have growth and deal with climate change at the same time. And so the, the price being low, I mean, one of the arguments I would make, I mean, in the EU right now, they're talking about the fact that the price of carbon could go to historic highs of just over 30 euros per ton. So it's higher. Now, that's still nowhere near what many of the um, people researching carbon pricing would say, where, say it needs to be to actually push deep structural transformation the price is going higher, certainly some actors are feeling it. But what I would argue is that, you know, we have to look at the political economy of carbon market design to understand why prices remain low, and to really counter the really alluring kind of arguments made by the proponents of carbon markets and the economists who, you know, love carbon pricing in this way, um And to say, you know, well, why have prices been low so far, and why are governments utterly unwilling uh, for various reasons to you know enact the kinds of prices that are required? And you know, I would say that they design the markets so that the prices won't actually be where they would need to be in theory, And so that has to do like going back to what I was discussing at the beginning. You know when governments set these caps, uh, the the proponents of carbon markets say, well, the environmental integrity with a carbon market comes with the cap. That's why it doesn't matter what the price is because we have a cap, and the cap ensures the environmental integrity. Yeah, but the caps are politically set. They're set by by you know human beings. they're they're not set by say scientists coming into a room and saying, this is what it needs to be. Here, policymakers put that in place. These are politically negotiated. So, what we find all around the world is that when caps are being implemented, they're actually too high. They're above business as usual emissions when what they actually need to be is lower. So, what that does, it immediately creates a surplus of carbon allowances within the market. And if there's a surplus, well, then we can go to our, you know, the economic theory that says, you know, if there's too much, then the price is gonna to be too low. The price is gonna be lower. And then I always point to the fact that, in theory, the point of carbon pricing is to make it expensive. But if the price is too low, then you're not doing that. So one, they, make the, they, they set the caps too high because they don't want the price to be too high because of all of the political ramifications that come with that. Secondly, um, in cap-and-trade schemes all around the world, Governments also then uh, make provisions to say that we're going to give allowances away for free to heavy emitters. So to industries, for example, that are trade exposed and carbon intensive, the argument is that if you make them pay for their carbon allowances, then they're going to be at a competitive disadvantage relative to companies that aren't you know, covered by a carbon price in other countries. So if you've got a steel producer in the EU who has to pay the carbon price, um, and then you have a steel producer in India that doesn't, the argument is that that Indian company is going to have a competitive advantage and therefore you're killing European industry. So governments then say, well, we've got to give away the allowances for free. Well, the result is you're shielding the heaviest emitters that need to do the most to lower their emissions from the carbon price. So it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And then it also in a roundabout way contributes to this oversupply question because they're given all of these free allowances. Um, Research from the EU shows that these companies have actually been given too many allowances because the caps have been too high. So they get more than they need. And these companies have been putting them on the books as assets and selling them into the market when they've needed to raise revenue, which then puts more carbon out there. And then finally, it's this question of carbon offsetting. So governments say, look, companies need flexibility, it's gonna be really hard, so we're gonna allow carbon offsets to be used um, to meet emission reduction commitments within our cap. Fine, but, and as one scholar, Larry Lohman, uh, and he's a researcher. He, you know, likens this to punching a hole in your cap because you're letting in all of this excess supply from outside the cap in the form of carbon offsets into your cap and trade scheme. So you've overinflated uh, your cap again. All of this combines to lead to the crashing of carbon prices or carbon prices that are far too low to be effective. Now, what I would argue, because many economists will come back and say, yeah, if only governments would just, you know, design these things properly so that they work the way they're supposed to. And I would say that, you know, only in the theoretical world of of neoclassical economics or neoliberal economics do we have a world where governments are going to behave in that way. In the real world... They don't, they are They are influenced by power relations, by politics, um, and so they design these things in line with very specific interests. And so this is how we need to understand why these markets look the way they do and why they haven't been particularly effective, yet they continue to remain so popular.
0: It is infuriating in a way, especially the example I think that you gave of a steel plant in the EU versus a steel plant in India, yeah, which ties back to what you talked about in terms of carbon colonialism. the The point is, the plant in the EU should be uncompetitive. It should stop producing because you've already produced so much, and it's time you stop doing that. So maybe you know th- this idea of carbon colonialism can perhaps be a, a place to conclude because the question is not simply one of reducing emissions, which is not happening anyway, but also of doing it in a way that is just and that addresses these historical problems. And what you've pointed out to us just now is that in the real world, we need to contend with power relations we need to contend with the political economy of the question and not just float around in, uh, in economic models in our textbooks. So yeah. what room is there for optimism is is part one of my question. And part two of my question, I was going to ask something like, what should we do? But uh, from what you're saying Even the concept of we is not straightforward. Just between the Global North and the Global South, there is not a we. Even within the Global South, as you said, in certain local communities, there are those who uh, have power, who have land, who are men, and those who are not. So the we is not uh, so straightforward. But then I guess the question is, what is to be done? Now I've just removed the subject. (laughs) I'm just asking what is to be done. Uh, and especially, uh, you know, if my students are in the global south. We're in Pakistan. Uh, we do not um, emit that much carbon, but we are going to face, uh, especially in Pakistan, we, we have everything from glaciers melting to sea levels rising. All of it is in Pakistan. How, what do we do?
1: Yeah, well, that's the, the million or hundred million dollar question, I suppose, I mean, it's, you know, I'll be honest, it's hard not to be cynical when you do this kind of research and you see how these things play out and you see the injustice that's, you know, all around us in terms of who's already suffering the greatest impacts from climate change, um, who will continue to suffer at much greater levels, and then who's not taking on their responsibility. So, in terms of that question of responsibility, I mean, you know a, a lot of it so recognizing the the historical responsibility and and the remaining carbon space and the fact that you know different you know countries and actors uh play different roles here, you know one of the things we want to think about is obviously class and the fact that you know the the, you know, top 1%, the top 10% globally, global north and global south, um, are currently, you know, the super emitters and the super affluent who, you know, are playing a much greater role. So that has to be part of the discussion. But then I would say, like, you know, in terms of, you know, I'm continuously frustrated here in Canada, you know, because we will often hear these these discussions around... um, you know, well, Canada, I mean, we've only got a population of 30 something million compared to countries in the global south. I mean, they have way more people, they're way more responsible than we are, because our population is so small, which completely ignores our historical responsibility. And it also ignores the per capita emissions of people in Canada, versus uh, Pakistan, or in India, uh, or a in China. And so, I'm always frustrated by that and I'm very frustrated that we have a government here in Canada who I I wouldn't say they're not doing anything. They are, you know, they are investing in green initiatives and I think we have to recognize that or it would be disingenuous. But I would say at the same time, we have a government here that says, look, you know, we can do various green initiatives. We can plan to have climate targets that we continuously fail to meet And so we're going to aggressively pursue the opportunity to use carbon offsets from the global South and meeting our commitments. Um, And then we can also buy oil pipelines and say, we're going to continue using up the world's carbon space with one of the most polluting types of oil that there is in the world, which is the tar sands oil, which I think comes to this question here in Canada then, or in the EU, this question of the steel company in the EU or in Canada, you know, the the oil pipelines and the oil workers, there's a very real question around what happens to the people who are employed in those sectors? Because it's not just the companies, obviously. And I think if our governments don't get really serious about talking about what a just transition is going to look like in countries of the global north, so that we're investing in people having... Opportunities outside of carbon intensive industries, then they will be a political force that will continue to block climate action. And I have to say, you know, I always tell this story of, you know, I grew up, you know, I come from a family that worked, um, you know, my dad worked at General Motors, um, you know, one of the biggest car companies in the world, um, you know, one of the most intensive, carbon intensive industries in the world. I worked there as a summer student to pay my way through university, you know, so there's real livelihood needs of of people north and south. Um, And when you think about the fact that all of these people who are employed in these industries that we basically need to transition away from, they need an alternative, they need somewhere else to go. So governments in the global north have to get serious about really investing in this transition and saying that that's also a matter of global climate justice, because we need to transition out. We can't continue to to say a transition needs to happen, but we're not going to give people here opportunities because they will block political action, which means countries in the global south who haven't had a fair share of the carbon space and it's rapidly shrinking what's left, Well, where? Do, how are we ever going to then address the, the injustice there if we don't begin to aggressively in address injustice here and make sure that we're taking care of everyone? And so I, I'd say that's a big piece of the puzzle. And then for countries in the global south, I mean, there's obvious reasons You know why they continue to develop fossil fuel infrastructure but you know there are opportunities to you know kind of avoid some of the things that the global north in fact did in terms of their energy infrastructures and and developing outside of that and you know this distinction in the global south between you know i always find it fascinating fascinating looking at you know the global climate change uh, conferences that happen And, you know, there is no homogenous global south either, just like there's no homogenous communities or anything else. So you have small island states, or you've noted like Pakistan is going to be one of the worst affected. Um, And you look at countries like Bangladesh. And so you've got, you know, small island developing states who are saying we're literally going to be losing our entire country to sea level rise. We will be gone. And so... They're, they're looking to Canada and they're looking to the EU and they're looking to China and they're looking to India and saying, we need all of you to act now. And so this is where it gets very challenging because I would say that, you know, many are saying within the context of the pandemic, we have an opportunity to have, you know, recovery packages that are green and stimulus packages that are green And I do think that we are seeing investments going into, you know, Europe's Green Deal and, you know, there's more momentum for the new Green Deal in the the United States. And, you know, Biden, you know, I would say he's middle of the road, but he's certainly been pushed to have a much more aggressive climate plan than he would have been if youth hadn't mobilized aggressively. Um, And I think this is one of the things too, young people mobilizing aggressively to demand action from their governments. And depends on what country you live in and how much freedom you have to do that. But that's really important in terms of, you know, putting pressure on our governments because it's that political pressure and their desire also to, you know, be in power. Um, that means, you know, depending on who's putting pressure on them, whether or not they're listening. And so there's a lot of vested interests that want us to continue with business as usual. And I think we are seeing recovery packages where money's going into fossil fuels, and they're driven by an overarching logic that we need to continue with economic growth. But we're seeing, I think, this movement uh, increasingly to push for something different. So, you know, we're talking more and more about well being, not just about economic growth. Uh, we're seeing ideas like degrowth that are really gaining traction and the idea that maybe we can live good lives without economic growth. And it's about sufficiency and redistributing the wealth rather than saying, let's keep generating more and more, which is captured by the elite. So I think what we have to do is start thinking about what real structural transformation can look like um, and and mobilizing for those different kinds of models that would allow us all, I think, to live better lives. And I know that was that's not particularly concrete, but I, I, I think that the nature of my critique gives points us in directions of where we need to go.